Well, good morning, everyone. And to you watching online, and those of you down in F3, I don't know if you heard, we had some excitement here in the first service. Uh, we had a motor in the old building uh, in the attic burn out, so there was a smell of smoke, and uh, we evacuated. And we had the fire trucks here, and uh, it was during the worship time, so it didn't cut into my sermon. <laughs> nice day outside, God is good. Uh, I tell you what. Uh, we, we practice these things every once in a while here at Fellowship because it's a big building, and we uh, saw how to get out of here, and it would, uh, you know, the, ex the escape plans, and it all worked very nicely. I want to thank our safety team who uh, uh, took over and did a great job, and uh, we um, no, no harm done, and, but it uh, it was fun. It was in a little excitement here. All is all is well. So down in F3. Uh, this is live streaming, so um, uh, if there's some glitches down there, um, hey, we live with it. Um, I've never been in an in a actual fire before, uh, which is good. Um, but uh, i tell you what, in the first century, when 120 Christ followers are in one room, and a ball of fire enters that room, uh, and you don't have a... Uh, an egress plan and a safety team to figure out what's going on, it gets pretty, uh, pretty exciting, I'm sure. And that's what happened in Acts chapter 2. So this morning, we're continuing our study. Take your Bibles to Acts uh, chapter 2. Ten days after Jesus ascended into heaven, 120 followers uh, who had been told by Jesus to go to Jerusalem and wait, and they were engaged in, uh, in prayer together and they were waiting up in that upper room, 120 believers, and then something amazing happened. And we got a lot of ground to cover. We're going to talk about this morning how the, uh, the Holy Spirit came, the coming of the Holy Spirit, and the confusion that that brought to the Jews, and how Peter stood up in his first sermon, and he corrected those misconceptions, and he gave insights from God's Word of what was happening. So Acts chapter 2. Let me, um, let, let's just start reading in verse 1. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place, that 120 believers. They were all together in that, that place. And suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind. It filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues of fire distributing themselves. And they rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit of God was giving them utterance. Now, this is an amazing scene. So it starts with that rushing, the sound of a violent rushing wind. If you've ever been in a tornado, I haven't, but my cousin this summer who, grew up, who lives on the farm where I grew up, just three miles from where I grew up, this summer it happened, first time in his 70 years, uh, the freight train came through. He heard the sound, the rushing wind, and just as he's diving down the stairs for safety, it came through, a little damage to the house. Boy, it did some major destruction to his farm. And it was that classic freight train sound. Well, the violent rushing wind, the sound of it came, and then this, this fire came into the room, and literally it, it says that it, it, it kind of broke apart and distributed these like little tongues of fire on every one of these 120 believers. And then the phenomenon took place where they began speaking in, in another tongue, in a foreign tongue. The, the Greek word is glossa, and it's always referring to a foreign language. And so here these people started speaking in a language they had never learned, 
and uh, just, just uttering forth the praises of God. This took place on the day of Pentecost. There are seven feasts in the Old Testament the Old Testament talks about, and all of them have some prophetic significance to them. So, for instance, uh, the Feast of Passover, that was prophetic of Jesus' death when he died on the cross, or the Feast of First Fruits, it was the first day of the week after the Passover, uh, of uh, the Sabbath of the Passover, and that was uh, prophetic of Jesus' resurrection. Well, 50 days later, 50 days after Passover, the Pentecost, the Feast of Penta, 50, uh, took place where um, the Jewish people would come. It was one of the required feasts to go up to Jerusalem. You have to celebrate it in Jerusalem. And they would come to Jerusalem, and they would commemorate the, and rejoice and celebrate the harvest. It was called the Feast of the Harvest. Uh, and um, what was that prophetic of? Well, the coming of the Holy Spirit, the beginning of the, of the church, this coming together of Jews and Gentiles into one body called the Church of Jesus Christ. In fact, at the Feast of Pentecost, they took two loaves of leavened bread, leaven signifying sin, two loaves of leavened bread, sinners, Jews and Greeks, Gentiles coming together in the body of Christ to reap a harvest of souls, the, the Feast of Harvest, and we'll, we'll see that at the end of this passage. And so here comes this uh, amazing scene of the fire, of the wind, and of the speaking in tongues. And along with it, a lot of confusion and curiosity among the Jews. The people heard this. They, they start coming and gathering around that place where the 120 were and all this was taking place. And um, let's pick it up with verse 5. There were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. And isn't that kind of a curious statement? There were Jews living in Jerusalem. It's kind of like saying there were Catholics in Rome. <laughs> there were Muslims in Mecca. Of course there's Jews living in Jerusalem. So wh wh why did Luke put that emphasis? Well, he'll put that emphasis throughout here. The, the, the people that this is being focused upon are the Jewish people, the Jewish nation. And what happened? When they heard this sound, the crowd came together, verse 6, they were bewildered because each of them was hearing them speak in his own language. You may have a footnote in your Bibles, in a study Bible. It's the Greek word dialectos. They heard him in their own dialect. It was a known language. The people are speaking it, but they had no idea what they were speaking. But it was a known dialect. And verse 7, they were amazed, they were astonished. Uh, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? I mean, the Galileans were viewed as kind of the the, the hillbillies from the north, and they're speaking this way. How is it that each here that we each hear in our own language, our own dialect, to which we were born, Parthenians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Age, uh, Egypt, districts of Libya around Cyrene, visitors from Rome, just people who had left Rome and were sojourning. Uh, in, in Jerusalem, Jews, proselytes, verse 11 says, Cretans, Arabs. We hear them in our own tongues speaking of the mighty deeds of God. They were shocked. They were amazed. And they said in verse 12, as, it, as they continued, it says, in amazement and great perplexity, what does this mean? What's going on here? What does this mean? And of course, some were saying in verse 13, oh, they're just, they're just drunk. They're acting like drunk fools. And that's where Peter stands up. 
and delivers his amazing Day of Pentecost sermon, his first sermon after being empowered by the Holy Spirit. And so in verse 14, Peter, taking a stand with the eleven, raised his voice, declared to them, men of Judea and all who live in Jerusalem, again, who's his target group? Those Jewish people. Let this be known to you and give heed to my word. And he begins his sermon. Now, just for a real quick thing, let's go to the end of the sermon because this is where he's concluding. Let me just start with his conclusion. His conclusion there in verse 36, um, Therefore let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him, Jesus, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. That's where he's going. Let it be known for certain, this Jesus is Lord and Christ. Now let's back up and see how he gets there. Men of Judea, all who live in Jerusalem, let it be known to you, give heed to my word. These men are not drunk. For it's merely the third hour, it's nine o'clock in the morning. Now his first, he's going to give two corrections. His first correction is right there, these men are not drunk. He takes his stand, he makes that statement, it's the third, only the third hour, these men are not drunk, as you suppose. But then he gives what is actually happening. And he does that by quoting Joel chapter 2. He goes into the Old Testament, Joel chapter 2. Verse 16, what is this? The Jews asked in verse 12, what is this? What's happening? What does this mean? And he said, verse 16, this, so he's connecting, answering their question, this is what Joel talked about, what the prophet Joel said. And I quote from Joel 2, and it shall be in the last days, God says, that I'm going to pour out my spirit on all mankind. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your young men shall see visions, your old men will dream dreams. Even on my bond slaves, both men and women, I will in those days pour forth of my spirit, and they will prophesy, and I will grant wonders in the sky above, signs on the earth below, blood, fire, vapor, smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness, the moon into blood, before the great and glorious day of the Lord shall come. Verse 21, he wraps it up from Joel, and it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be delivered, will be saved. What is this? The Jews asked, and Peter answers it. This is what Joel says. So what Peter is saying is, this is fulfilled prophecy. Peter is directly saying that what Joel had prophesied, this is now the fulfillment of. Now, to understand, I think, more fully what, what Peter was saying or what Joel was saying, we have to understand a little bit about that phrase, the last days. This is what Joel said, it shall be in the last days. Now, we understand here at Fellowship Bible Church, this, this eschatological timeline, this prophetic timeline, you've got Christ's first coming, and then the day of Pentecost and the age of the church, the age that we're living in now, began. It's been going for 2,000 years. But one day, Jesus is going to return. We call the rapture. He's going to snatch us up, 2 Thessalonians chapter 4. We're going to meet him in the clouds of the air. And as we understand the prophetic timeline, uh, there's going to then begin seven years of what's called the great tribul or the tribulation period. The, some call it the 70th week of Daniel or the day of the Lord. Seven-year period of time after which Jesus returns to this earth and he'll set up his kingdom on earth. That's how we understand the prophetic timeline. Well, the last days 
New Testament teaches is that whole time period from his first coming, or when he ascended into heaven, until his second coming. Peter is saying, right there, 2,000 years ago in Jerusalem, when that day of Pentecost took place, this is what Joel prophesied, that in the last days I'm going to pour out my spirit. So the last days began right then. The last days began then, and folks, we're still living in the last days because the return of Christ hasn't happened. It's a long time period, these last days. Now, notice what Peter, what he quoted in Joel 2, that didn't happen. He talks about the signs in the sky above and the earth below, the blood, the fire, the vapor of smoke, the sun being turned into darkness, the moon and the blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord shall come. Now, um, that didn't happen on this day of Pentecost. The pouring out of the Spirit did, and that's what Peter said was the fulfillment. This is what Joel talked about, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. I fully suspect that Peter thought also, maybe within the hours, or maybe a few days, there were going to be those celestial signs that were going to take place. Blood, fire, vapor of smoke, the sun turned into darkness, the moon and the blood, before the great and horrible day, a terrible day of the Lord begins. I think Peter thought it was all going to happen right now. Of course, it didn't. Now, I'm going to give Peter some slack because a couple weeks ago we were talking about this, how after Jesus was raised from the dead, according to Acts chapter 1, Jesus for 40 days... After he was raised from the dead, before he ascended in heaven, 40 days, it says that he was talking to them, his disciples, about the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. And so sincere were the disciples that in verse 6 of chapter 1, they asked, Lord, is it at this time you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Is, are, these all, are these prophetic events going to take place now where, where Jesus is going to, where you, Lord, are going to reign supreme and in Jerusalem on earth in the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecy? Is it now that you're going to restore the, the kingdom to Jerusalem? And Jesus doesn't correct them. He just says, it's not for you to know the times of the epochs that the Father has fixed. You just be my witnesses. Don't worry about the timing of that. He didn't say it wasn't going to happen. He just said, you be my witnesses. Go to Jerusalem and wait for what was promised. So 10 days later, they've waited for what is promised. Boom! Here comes the wind, the fire, the speaking in tongues, the Spirit uh, is poured out. Of course, it would be logical to say, well, okay, this is the last days. And the great and terrible day of the Lord is going to come now. And, and all the consummation of all these biblical prophecies that Joel and the other prophets talked about, it's about to happen. Well, hold on, Peter. Um, what Peter didn't understand, and again, we understand fully why he didn't, but what he didn't fully understand is that God, in those last days, was going to unfulfill things in installments. That was typical of biblical prophecy. Biblical prophets of the old times would speak of events that were about to happen in their immediate future, but then they also had, God intended for that prophecy to have a far fulfillment as well. Maybe hundreds of years, centuries later, that would take place. That's what's happening here. The last days is a long period of time. It's been going for 2,000 years. At the beginning of the last days, it was the outpouring of the Spirit. But something is yet to come. 
And as we approach ever increasingly the end of the last days, something amazing is going to still take place. And Peter quoted that from Joel. But it didn't happen then. Um, so he goes on. He gives a second correction. The first correction, hey, these people are drunk. No, these men are not drunk as you suppose. This is what Joel talked about. It's the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. The wind, the fire, this, the speaking of tongues and these, these foreign languages, that's the Spirit of God pouring out. Now he offers a second correction. Look at verse 22. Men of Israel, now listen to these words. Again, who's his audience? Men of Israel, Israelites. The earnestness, listen to these words. And now notice his focus. This is the Holy Spirit. That was what Joel talked about. But now he's going to focus on Jesus. That's the center of his sermon. Jesus the Nazarene. Jesus the Nazarene. Now, if you were a Jew listening to these words and listening to Peter's sermon, that, at that point you, you could have stopped hearing and listening. It was like fingers on a chalkboard. Jesus the... Nazarene. I mean, if Galileans, you know, parts of the, the northern region, say, of the Sea of Galilee were kind of backwoodsy, hillbilly-ish, Nazareth, I mean, that was an outlying po outpost of, of uh, I mean, no one wanted to be from Nazareth. When Jesus uh, was first introduced in John chapter 1 at his baptism, Philip tells Nathaniel, you've got to come and see. It's, it's the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth. Nazareth? Can anything good come from Nazareth? Nathaniel said. And isn't it interesting, that's how Peter started his sermon. He wanted people, he wanted there to be no mistake. Who am I talking about? Who's the focal point of all this? The guy from Nazareth. The guy from Nazareth. Jesus. A man, he says, attested, proven to you by God with miracles, wonders, signs which God performed through him in your midst. And you yourselves know it. I mean, he's saying, you, you were there. You saw the, the, the lame being healed. You saw the blind being able to see. Some of you, you were there in Bethany when, when Lazarus, who had been dead in the tomb for four days, came forth alive. God attested these things to you. Well, this man, verse 23, who was delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men, Romans, and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it is impossible for him to be held in its power. What is Peter doing? He said, let me tell you what is really happening here. Jesus, yeah, the one from Nazareth, the one that you put to death. Well, let me tell you, Peter is saying, that was no quirk of fate. That was no accident. That was no, no uh, you know, Roman thing that uh, they wanted to suppress an insurrection. He was put on a cross because God planned it. He was nailed to the cross because it was his, God's predetermined plan and his foreknowledge. And by the way, foreknowledge does not mean that God looked ahead with his binoculars to see what might happen. Oh, oh, okay, well, I'll include that in my prophecy. No, it's a package deal. God had planned this. This is the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. 
God's fingerprints were all over this. The focus on, on, on God the Father is, you can't miss it. This man was attested, verse 22, to you by God with miracles, which God performed through him. This man was delivered over by you to be put on the cross, but it was the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God that made it about. And verse 24, raised from the dead, God did that. God did all of this. It's all part of the plan of God. This Jesus that was raised up, it was all the plan of God. He is alive. And it's all on the time scale of God. Now, what's the proof of that? <clears throat> and once again, Peter goes to the Old Testament. And he goes to Psalm 16. For, so here's his proof text, verse 25. For David says of him, of Jesus, I saw the Lord always in my presence. For he is at my right hand, so that I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad, my tongue exalted. Moreover, my flesh also will live in hope, because you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. For you have made known to me the ways of life, and you will make me full of gladness with your presence. All right, that, David said that, right? That's, all the Jews knew that was David saying those things. Oh, really? Brethren, verse 29, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died, was buried, and his tomb is with us today. Thou will not abandon my soul to Sheol. Thou will not allow, permit your Holy One to undergo decay. Well, obviously that wasn't David because Peter could say, let's just march right down there past the pool of Siloam and there's the sepulcher of David. And he died, he's buried, and dig it up, there you'll find his bones. He died and decayed and there he is, right there buried. No, this wasn't referring ultimately to David. And he goes on and he says in verse 30, and so because he was a prophet, David was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to sit one of his descendants on his throne, he looked ahead, and David spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, of the Christ, and that he was neither abandoned to Hades nor did his flesh suffer decay. And now Peter says in verse 32, this Jesus God raised up again, and we all are witnesses to it. Here's 120 people. They've been speaking in other tongues of the glory of God. These Jews from all different dialects, they've heard these wonders. They're being said, what, what, what's happening here? The Spirit of God has been poured out. And they've been speaking this and they've been seeing this. And what, what is all this? What's happening? It's evidence of the resurrection of Christ. We are witnesses to this. And all 120 of them could say that. Plus another 380 because Paul said there was 500 at one time that saw the risen Lord. We, we, we are witnesses of this. So we put our fingers in his nail print hands. We stuck our fist in his side. We ate with him. We walked with him for 40 days after he was raised. We, we met with him. He taught us. We are witnesses of this thing. And David prophesied it in Psalm 16, Peter is saying. David is still in the tomb. He couldn't have been talking about himself. He couldn't have been talking about anybody else, his son, Solomon, anybody else. He looked ahead and he saw the Messiah 
who was not abandoned in Sheol, who was raised up to newness of life. And Peter said, and I'm telling you who it is. It's the guy from Nazareth. It's Jesus. And we're witnesses to this very thing. And so how does he conclude his sermon? He brings two conclusions. Verse 33 starts with the word, therefore. Verse 36 starts with the word, therefore, two conclusions. Verse 33, or, yeah, verse 33, he says, Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear. He was exalted, ascended into heaven, he sits at the right hand of God, and he received from the Father the, Holy, the gift of the Holy Spirit to be poured out. Now, a little subtlety here that you need to pick up before we go to verse 36. A little subtlety here. In verse 33, it says, Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand, who is he talking to? About. Talk about Jesus. Jesus was exalted to the right hand of God, having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. He... Jesus, the pronoun he, the antecedent to he is the one who's been exalted, is Jesus. Jesus has poured forth this which you both see and hear. But now wait a minute. Go back to what Joel said, chapter 2, verse 17. It shall be in the last days. God says, Jehovah God, I will pour forth my spirit on all mankind. Interesting, little subtlety, did the Jews pick this up? Oh, I bet they did. Jehovah God, Joel said, is going to pour out the Spirit. But at the conclusion of his sermon, Peter says it was Jesus. And by so doing, he's connecting Jesus with the God of the Old Testament, Yahweh. Fascinating. Peter is saying the pouring forth of the Spirit could not have happened unless Jesus was raised from the dead and was seated at the right hand. That's when the outpouring of the Holy Spirit the very fact that this phenomena took place today, this morning, Peter says, is proof. Not just take our word for it as witnesses, it's proof. He's alive. Here's his second conclusion. Therefore, and this is all builds to this, therefore let it all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Messiah. This Jesus who you crucified. And there it is. It all builds to that. What's the bottom line? Here's the bottom line. Jesus the Nazarene. Jesus the Nazarene has been made both Lord and Christ. The one that you crucified. Interesting that he began his sermon identifying Jesus as the one from Nazareth, the Nazarene. How does he end it? He is God and he is Messiah. Let all the house of Israel know without any hesitation, God has made him Lord and Messiah, this Jesus, who you crucified. The pouring out of the Spirit, the raising of Christ, the ascension of Christ, the, the exalted Christ, all of this proves, Peter says, that that man from Nazareth is God and Messiah. What happened to the Jewish people who were listening? Well, the conviction fell upon them, verse 37. And now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart. They were cut to the heart. 
And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? And somehow, at some point, as the Spirit of God now had been poured out, and Peter makes that conclusion, he connects the dots, he dots the I's, he crosses the T, and he concludes this Jesus that you crucified. And boy, do they remember it. A month and a half earlier, they might have been in the crowd that said, Crucify him, crucify him. We have no king but Caesar. They were from their mouth, they said, Barabbas, give us Barabbas. Away with him. And now they're brought face to face from the sermon of Peter through the power of the Holy Spirit and the conviction of the Old Testament teaching. This Jesus who you crucified, he is Lord and Christ. And he connected the dots and all of a sudden they believed it. What are we to do? Is their cry. And Peter said in verse 38, Repent, each one of you, and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promises for you and your children and for all those far off, as many as the Lord will call to himself. And with many other words, verse 40, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, be delivered, be saved, be rescued from this perverse generation. And verse 41, so then those who had received his word were baptized. And on that day, 3,000 people were harvested on the day of the harvest, the day of Pentecost, and people had come to faith in Jesus Christ. And next week, Caleb Pearson is going to come. He's going to continue this passage. He's going to tell us what those 3,000 souls did as they begin to gather together as the church of Jesus Christ. Now, I'm going to come back in two weeks, and I'm going to fill in the details of verses 37 to 41, because maybe you're sitting there with a little nerving Peter's sermon. It's not the way I would have preached the gospel. Repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. We don't do that here. Why not? Well, hang on, two weeks from now we'll talk about that. Amen. Well, the first century Jews who listened to Peter's sermon, the implications were monumental. Were monumental. The last days had begun. What Joel had prophesied, in part, had happened. The Spirit of God, all those Old Testament prophecies, and we talked about it about four weeks ago and when I had a sermon on the Old Testament prophecies of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, here it was, the day of Pentecost, here it came. The implications for the Jewish people, profound. But what about us today? We're 2,000 years removed from this. What do we walk away with this morning? Well, there's tons of stuff in this passage, but I just want to mention two things. Folks, we're living in the last days. It started 2,000 years ago, and you might say, well, big deal. It was 2,000 years ago it started. Uh, why should I worry about today? For the simple fact that we're 2,000 years closer to the end times, right? Uh, a couple weeks ago, I quoted from Romans chapter 13, where, where Paul says, our salvation is nearer today than when we first believed. And he goes on and says, the, day, the night is almost over, folks, and the day is about to dawn. We are 2,000 years closer, and that ought to give us a sense of urgency. The Jewish people, they heard Peter's sermon, and they were pierced to the heart. And folks, we need some piercing in the heart of the church of Jesus Christ today. The church of Jesus Christ must be aroused to the reality that we are called to be witnesses in this world because the day is, is coming near. The darkness is almost over. 
We're 2,000 years closer. Let's get serious about our calling to proclaim, Peter says in 1 Peter 2, the excellencies of Christ in the midst of a darkened world. The day is closer than it ever has been. Be on the alert. Be ready. Look, folks, we've got an election coming up. Yeah, it's a midterm. But as Christians, we can actually, in this country, be able to vote. We can vote things that God calls righteousness, what God says is, is social justice. We have an opportunity and an obligation to do that, but that's just one little thing. We're called to, to let our lights shine in such a way that people see the glory of God in this earthen vessel. We need to get our house in order. Peter said it's time for judgment to begin with the household of God. We need to be serious about our walk with Christ. We need to get involved in discipleship and, and, and grow in our faith. That's what we try to offer here at Fellowship Bible Church. Not to invite you to come here and sit soaking sour until the fire alarm goes off and you've got to go outside and get cold. But to live victoriously for Him because the day is dawning near. It's coming. Let's be awake. Let's be alert. But the second thing I want to emphasize, which Peter emphasizes here, is as we are alert and as we are waiting in these last days, let's never forget who is at the right hand of the Father, who has been exalted in glory. Jesus, the Nazarene, the one who came and he took our sins upon himself and he died in our place, all by the predetermined plan of God, all according to the plan of God. And he didn't stay dead, but God raised him again on the third day. And hundreds of people witnessed it 2,000 years ago. And we have an opportunity to serve this risen, exalted Christ. He's sitting at the right hand of the Father right now in glory. He's sitting there in triumph. And he's given the Holy Spirit to empower us, as Ephesians chapter 1 says, he, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead, seated him at the right hand of the Father in heavenly places, far above all rule, authority, power, and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age but in the one to come. He has put all things in subjection under his feet. When Jesus was about to be ascended, he told his disciples, all authority has been given to me on heaven and earth. Now go and be my witnesses. Don't shriek back in fear. Don't bite your fingernails. Don't worry about what the world says that is growing increasingly antagonistic to the name of Christ. Good night. He's on the throne and he's reigning supreme. He's on the throne and he is exalted and he is our Lord. That's what we have to focus on. I think of the heavenly scene in Isaiah chapter 6 that we talked about when I preached through Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 6 verse 1, Isaiah said, In the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty, exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings, and with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, and all the earth is full of his glory. Well, guess what? He's still on that throne. Now, he's different. He's the God-man. He took on flesh, and as he ascended into heaven, he became the, the God. He's, there's humanity and deity combined in one person, Jesus, sitting at the right hand of the Father. And he's going to return in glory one day, the God-man exalted. And one day he's going to rise from that throne. He's going to come back and he's going to sit on the throne of David here on earth to reign supreme. 
until we all enter then eventually the, the new heaven and new earth. Oh, he's got it under control. It's all according to his plan. We have nothing to fear. So what is he doing now? Sitting right up there on the right hand of the Father? What, what, what's he doing? If you want to take a point of time in your sermon notes, I've listed this, but let me run through some things real quickly of what Jesus is doing right now. Are you ready? What is he doing? He's building his church, and the gates of hell are not going to prevail. What is he doing? He's leading us as the chief shepherd, as the head of the church. What is he doing? He's interceding for us as our great high priest and mediator. What is he doing right now? He's advocating for us, our righteous defense attorney, 1 John 2. What is he doing right now? He's helping us in our daily weaknesses. He comes to our aid with his mercy and grace as we suffer, as we're tempted. He runs to us to help us, to aid us. What is he doing? Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. He's strengthening us every day. Ephesians 5.26, what is he doing? He's sanctifying his bride. He's bringing us all into holiness and blamelessness. What is he doing? He's upholding and sustaining all things by his powerful word. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. By the way, that's an amazing thought. It says he upholds all things right now by his powerful word. All things, um, all things stick together. All things are held together by his powerful word. You know what it means? That if there was one millisecond of time where Jesus was not by his powerful presence, his word, not holding all things together, in that millisecond of time, everything, all of us would be just dissolved in an instant. We would just be flung into nothingness. And he's holding all things together by his powerful word. That's our Jesus, exalted at the right hand of the Father. That's what he's doing. And you know what else he's doing? He's waiting. He's waiting until the day the Father is going to make all his enemies a footstool for his feet. That's right. Hebrews chapter 10 says, But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins, has sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. He's going to come again. And according to Psalm chapter 2, he's going to come with power and justice and judgment and righteous glory. And the psalmist in the Psalm 2, you better kiss the king or run and hide. And one day all his enemies are going to be, be his footstool. Every knee is going to bow before him one day. Paul said this in Philippians chapter 2. For this reason God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee is going to bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Oh, make no mistake, one day Joe Biden is going to bow his knee before the Father, and Donald Trump is going to bow his knees before the Father, and everyone who has breath and who's ever lived is going to bow their knee, and they're going to say, you are Lord. You are the King you are Lord. And some after that are going to go into everlasting destruction and some unto everlasting life. 
Are you pierced through today like the Jews were 2,000 years? This is our Jesus. Do not take him for granted. This is our Jesus. And he deserves, he commands our loyalty, our devotion, our love. Because he's the king. And he's coming again. And if you don't know him as your personal savior, you've got a wonderful opportunity right now today. A wonderful opportunity to bow your knee before him right now. I'm going to invite you to do that. To put your trust in Jesus Christ. Do it today. The hour of his return is closer than it ever has been. And if you don't know where you're going to spend eternity, then folks, you would be, it would be utter stupidity to leave here today and not settle the issue. You see, the good news is that this God, this Jesus, who is now reigning supreme, came to this earth, and in love, he paid for your sins. The thing that was separating you from all of eternity, separating all of us from eternity and from a heavenly God, a holy God, was our sin. And Jesus took that sin and he died for us. He said, I'll pay the penalty. And he did a perfect work. All our sins are paid for. And he offers the free gift of eternal life to anyone who wants to receive it. Do you want to receive that free gift of eternal life? Then bow before him right now and accept that free gift. What's that look like? He simply says, I believe that I can't do it myself. You transfer your trust off of yourself, your religiosity, anything that you might bring to the table that you think would impress God, and you throw it aside, you cast it aside, and says the only thing that's going to impress God, and he already has been, is Jesus and the payment he made. And you put your trust in that moment right now. Trust Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. And who are you trusting? You're trusting the Lord, the Messiah. You're trusting God, Jehovah the Anointed One, the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the Son of Man, the Son of God, the coming King, and the one who loves you. Let's pray. Our Father, I pray that we too would be pierced to the heart this morning as we consider our relationship with you. I pray, Father, that uh, we will not take you for granted, your Son, nor your Spirit, the great triune God. May we orient our life centered as, as Peter's sermon was around you, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And may we walk humbly before you and then light up this world. Go and, and be a witness and proclaim this good news so that, Father, we can see other people whose hearts are pierced with the truth of who Jesus is and that we may be faithful until you return. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.